values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time, as always, with the show. The golf tournament, hailed as the People's Open, returns to the TPC of Scottsdale as the WM Phoenix Open tees off February 6th, runs through February 12th. You can head over to the contest page at KTAR.com right now for your chance to win tickets. And one lucky winner is going to win Greenskeeper passes. So that would be a cool prize to win. Um, Watching the stock markets, there's not much of a, a bump either way, but we are seeing that the numbers end the, to end 2022, GDP up 2.9%. The Dow it had predicted to be 2.8. So it's right in that window. Um, it's a little bit better than expected, which is good news for the end of the year. And now the questions are what's going to happen in January? What happens in the first quarter of 2023? Um, and that the indicators are that it's slowing because the growth slowed. In, uh, at the end, in, which was planned at the end of 2022, the issue is how much of that 2.9% gain was holiday spending? Because, as we all know, people, that's when the big part of the year when people spend, um, is, uh, first of all, for the holidays and for other people, they're spending because of tax season right around the corner, getting some things done at the end of the year. Um, so, what happens moving forward? Uh, we continue to hear about the housing market. Yesterday, we talked about uh, Goldman Sachs making a prediction that there are four real estate markets in the country, two of them in California, San Jose in Northern California, San Diego in Southern California, Austin, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. They are predicting there we will see an increase. Now, I didn't really see a timeline, but an increase in prices in those four markets, but then they expect a significant drop in value, um, and they're worried a concern about a 2008 drop. Now, I can't, every expert I've talked to says differently. Based on what the naked eye sees, it's hard to imagine that because of the demand for housing here in Arizona. So I don't necessarily see that happening. And many people don't either. Um, so I hope it doesn't happen. I would like to see what the president is doing on the economy continuing to work. Um, and what I mean by that is that we are slowing the economy, although we haven't driven it into a deep recession. That is the concern, that you slow it so much that it goes from slow growth to receding. And when that happens, that hole is much harder to dig yourself out of. So um, I want you to hear just a little bit of, of, of what uh, what some of the experts are saying. Um, this is Rebecca John. Harvest from ABC talking about the the numbers. What is it? How positive is this? Think of this as a report card on the health of our economy, and it is a passing solid grade. The economy grew in the final quarter of last year by 2.9%. That means it's cooling down from earlier, but it's still up. And one of the biggest reasons for that is the American consumer. Despite inflation, we continue to spend. So despite inflation, we continue to spend. One of the other things that is being negotiated now, what was being talked about, is the debt ceiling and what is going – how is that – could that affect the economy? Um, I want you to hear a little bit of that argument because what happens as that debt ceiling time approaches and we have the negotiations going on between the president and Congress, even though this has happened many times before, we have seen this happen anytime you have a split with one party in the White House and another party in the House of Representatives especially, this happens. But I want you to hear Senator Rand Paul talk about this. Um, he was talking about the negotiation. The president of the United States is doing what presidents do. He is saying this needs to be raised without any kind of a negotiation. It has to happen. 
happen. I'm not going to negotiate. It's going to happen. Go get it done. So Senator Paul is doing what the senators are going to do and say, mm, not so fast. President Biden says he won't negotiate over raising the debt ceiling. I have news for him. He absolutely will negotiate. Conservatives will not vote to raise the debt ceiling. The majority in the House, Republican majority in the House, will not vote to raise the debt ceiling without significant budget reform. So he talks about balancing the budget, and I'm going to I'll comment after you hear his comments. One of the great things about where we are now, though, is it really doesn't take as much as you would think to actually balance the budget. In Europe, over half of the countries balance their annual budget. We think of Europe, of Germany and Sweden, of having these large governments, and they do, but they're actually fiscally responsible in the sense that they spend what comes in. We could do it in our country. If we were to have a $100 billion cut, which would still have a spending way more than we spend, before COVID, a $100 billion cut in free spending, we would balance our budget in just four years. The issue here for me, and Senator Paul has been very consistent on this, um, although I don't always agree with him or anybody else, but he's been consistent on this. Republicans have not necessarily, and this is where it gets difficult because the party of small government and the party of responsible spending has not necessarily been that. Um, now, there was a lot of it was COVID. We understand that what the government was doing with COVID when it first happened caused the federal government to go spend a lot of deficit spending. There was a lot of deficit spending that happened. But we have to look at the irresponsibility that's gone on. And I don't know how possible this is. I'm reaching out to members of Congress that I know to ask the question. And I don't know how this happens, but in any other company I've ever been around, especially when they're bigger, because the bigger a company is, the more open you are to fraud and waste because um, of the enormity of that company. Um, But people audit. Um, Wealthy people have an accountant that they use, and then they hire a forensic accountant to audit their accountants to make sure that there isn't thievery going on, that there isn't fraud or, or, you know, embezzlement going on. It's not that you don't trust, it's trust but verify. And as a government, why are we not auditing agencies when we hear about hundreds of billions of dollars in the Department of Defense that they own equipment that they don't know where it is? Hundreds of billions of dollars in equipment, they cannot account for it. There are billions of dollars each year that are spent and the government can't tell you what it was spent on. There was a few years ago, the United States Postal Service owned equipment, car, we're talking about vehicles. They couldn't tell you where some of the vehicles were. Having an audit to see where we are and shore up waste would be one way that the American government wouldn't change one thing about the services they provide. Now, there's some of those things that are redundant and they need to go away or they need to be cut. But just without changing anything that we're doing, without bothering the left because we're we're not stopping some of their programs or bothering the right because we're not stopping any of their programs, if we could just stop the loss and the waste, we could save the American people billions. Why isn't that a big push? Why don't we have the the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives uh, clamoring for that kind of an audit, not to get people fired, but to expose where it's at and to stop it from happening? Then we get closer to a balanced budget. 
because where we are now, we're seeing this going toward the debt ceiling. It's got to go up. And what this all this really is, is you got to remember, it's like you go. It's like you going and asking at Christmas time during the holidays or whatever for an increase on your credit card limit. That's what it is. In essence, that's what it is. It increases the amount of money you can put on credit. Is it a good idea? I guess maybe sometimes, but you think about your own personal financial scenario. When you are already maxed out on your credit cards and you're in such a financial bad spot that the right answer for you is to increase your credit limit so that you can borrow more money, do you think you're in a good position financially or is that putting you in a bad position? I guess in some unique situations, borrowing more money might put you in a better position, but you're going deeper in debt. And in many cases, people believe, especially lenders, that you are post Owning the inevitable, and they don't want to lend you the money, or they do it at a higher rate. Um, so this is where we as citizens should be asking some serious questions. Which state blames a police shortage for record violence in their state last year? We're going to let you hear a story and what state that is coming up here in just a few moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again. Appreciate you spending some time with me. Um, There has been an ongoing conversation about the rise in violent crime. And if you look how 2023 started off with mass shootings in California, we are seeing uh, a rise in violent crime. Even here in the Valley, Valley cities have recorded the same thing. And questions about why this is happening. Now, Raleigh, North Carolina... Has uh, the Capitol reported its highest single year tally in homicides since 1995. And according to their data and what they are seeing, they say it's a shortage of police officers and lingering anti-police sentiment that is blamed for that record rise. So I want to try to I'm always trying to find middle ground in a conversation. I don't mind a conversation getting heated, but it's got to go somewhere. You know, I'm not, just screaming and yelling at each other doesn't do any good. You know as well as I do, if you've ever been married, you get into an argument with somebody. It starts off as a small argument. And you get to a point in the argument, you don't remember what you were fighting about. You're just fighting. Then you both get tired. You knock off the fighting. You cool off. You calm down. You come back together, and you resolve what was going on as the way a conversation is supposed to. You may still totally disagree, but you certainly aren't screaming at each other like you were an hour ago. So this conversation, trying to find some middle ground, I would say this for the people out there who we all let's let's start here. I think we all want the same thing. We want safe streets. We want good people protected from bad people. And we want communities to feel safe. And we don't want to feel as if there are two different sets of rules based on your economic status or the color of your skin. We all want that. And I would say to you that the defund the police movement got their way for the better part of a year or two in in believing that that would solve some of the community problems. There were actually activists that have said and continue to say, although their numbers are smaller and their voices aren't as loud, that – It is less police officers that make their community safer, that it's the police themselves that make a community dangerous. That has been defeated factually in practical data 
You look at Seattle or any, a lot of places in the Pacific Northwest, beautiful cities that people love that are littered with drug-addicted, overdosing people on the streets, with the Chad that was out there um, where, where the streets were taken over by people and the businesses fled. Businesses are leaving. A couple of staggering statistics in L.A. where there's such a lack of enforcement of laws by the county attorney out there. For such a long time, the 7-Eleven Corporation, 7-Eleven, I mean, those are, I want you to think in your mind how many 7-Elevens you pass in this valley driving to work every day. 7-Eleven Corporation was recommending to their, their franchisees and to some of their stores be closed because there was so much crime going on that they couldn't make any money. There was more theft than there was sales. So the idea that less police officers made our streets safer, we all want safer streets. That's our goal, right? Your way hasn't worked. As a matter of fact, your way, your way has been a failure. I maintain that the way you have safe streets is there is strength in numbers. And that is also makes suspects safer. Let me explain. There is a video. I'm trying to think of the of the conflicting videos. Um, I told you of the one that happened here in Phoenix a year or two ago. Now it's been a long time flies at my age, but there was a young officer who was called to a scene at 43rd and Bell or 43rd and Union Hills, and she was alone when she got on scene. It was a suspect in a parking lot with a knife. And I told the story that the way she handled the situation looked like a training video. She did such an excellent job, and she was alone. There was no backup there yet. And um, eventually backup got there. But before they got there, she was forced to shoot the suspect because he was lunging at her with a large knife. Same scenario at a Walmart somewhere else in the country. A woman in a Walmart with a knife confronting an officer. Officer holding a firearm at holding this woman at bay with a firearm. Another officer showed up that then uh, had a pistol out, had a, re- uh, a firearm out. The original officer, the arresting officer, put the firearm away and used the taser, less lethal, to tase this woman and take her into custody without shooting her or killing her. So strength in numbers, a lot of times those options are available. They don't always work. Sometimes it escalates and still becomes deadly. But I'm saying when you have more officers on a scene, you have a better chance of ending it with less lethal than you do other ways most of the time. You also want community investment. You want communities to trust the officers. Well, then an officer has to be able to spend more time or officers have to be able to spend more time in the community when they're not policing, when they are when they are building relationships. And those are just uh, common sense things. I I told a story of seeing four or five uh, Phoenix officers at at breakfast a couple of weeks ago. And I had seen these officers a few times, me going to breakfast at the same time they take their meal break. I'd seen them a couple of times. And um, I watched a family come in that had some young children. And I watched this little kid, probably four years old, approach the officers. And they stopped everything they were doing and engaged with this young man and invited this kid to sit with them at the table. They gave him a Phoenix Police badge sticker. Um, All the things you would hope to do in, in investing in that young man because they were on their meal break and they had an opportunity to engage 
engage the public in a way like that. Now, take a scenario like that with these young kids in a family situation in another neighborhood where the only time they saw police cars, when police cars were racing with lights and sirens going and cops were running after people and arresting them and stuffing them in the back of the car. It's hard to explain to a four-year-old that it's bad people and they're scared. It's a scary situation. So I would say to you, we all want the same um, outcome. The outcomes we want are safer streets and better relationships between the community and the officers that patrol that community. You can't have that unless you have the officers available to it. Last thing I'll say about it is training. The ability to pull officers out of service off the street and give them continuing education on skills like de-escalation and all of those other things, you have to have enough officers to fill that void. So I would say that's the key to the solution here is more officers, not less. Uh, Coming up in a moment, uh, the superintendent of public instruction is canceling some teacher presentations on social emotional learning. I'll tell you why this needs to happen, and I'll tell you why I believe it's going to be better for education. Next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time as always. Um, education, I'm going to continue to talk about this. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And for a lot of people, it, I think this is an evolving conversation. We've seen changes across the state of Arizona in this last election cycle. And it's weird how education's gone in the opposite direction. And here's what I mean by that. We've gone from a very, especially fiscally conservative governor to uh, what, uh, what you know, by her own admission, is a liberal Democrat governor that's going to be dealing with a legislature with a very tight lead for the Republicans. But in public Public education, we have gone from a Democrat, fairly liberal Democrat in um, Kathy Hoffman and superintendent to based on his past and his previous time as superintendent, Tom Horn, a very um, conservative uh, with a different approach to education, what he believed works. So we're going to see. We're going to see how it works. Um, a lot of parents have been uh, been clamoring for more control, and I, I still it, – it's still the biggest thing I'm talking about on social media with people, and it's interesting. This conversation has been going on all week, and it continues, and I like it. I'm glad people are talking about it. Um, in the end, I still believe parents deserve to have control. But specifically in this, if you've not heard of social emotional learning and, and critical race theory, and these are all, for, for most people involved in the conversations, are very broad terms that people don't have a very deep understanding of. And I would say to you, for the purposes of what I talk about, it doesn't matter. Um, and here's why. Kids can't read. Honestly, if you've got a third grader uh, that couldn't spell emotional uh, and and he couldn't read the word on a page and tell you what it means, why would you do anything else but teach them to read? And here's what I think about this. For the people out there politically, I don't care where you stand politically. I really don't. I'm confident enough and comfortable enough in my beliefs politically that I don't care if you're opposite me. We can still be friends. I would I would love to have a conversation with you. I'm not going to shout you down. Um, I, I'm comfortable in my beliefs, my own skin. When it comes to my political leanings and why I believe the things I believe, that's why I so freely disagree with my own party many times. Because 
because you're not going to question my conservatism because I don't agree with you on a certain issue. And that's what happens even within the Democratic Party. You're not liberal enough, and I don't know what kind of a clever name they come up with, but in the Republican Party, it's Rhino. It's Republican in name only. Um, and so I don't care what people call me. I'll stand on principle. I'll argue my point without rolling in the mud with someone. Um, the idea... If we teach kids, and if you're someone that disagrees completely with me on political issues, um, I want your children to grow up any way you want them to grow up. And so when your child learns to read and you tell your children what you think they should read, when your children see you reading and they decide to pick up the same books you do. Now, my kids aren't exactly like me. My kids in many ways aren't anything like me, but they can read. You know what I mean? They're educated. They have the ability to learn. That's the best thing you can give your children. And so for people of a different political leaning than myself, if you teach your child to read and read well, they will figure it out. That's the that's the beauty of it. That instead of telling them what they should know, you teach them how to read. We don't teach them what we want them to know. You know, going back when it comes to religion, I was raised Catholic, so this whole thing about Catholicism and and the Reformation and how things happened. And and for me, that is uh, all a big part of my life because I, I, I love to think and talk about these things. The idea that for years and years and years in Catholicism, I'm glad it's different now. Catholics didn't own a Bible. Catholics went to church. There was a thing called a missalette. They went to the Catholic Mass. The readings were there in that book, and then a priest did a homily based on one of the gospel readings, and he explained what that meant to you and what that meant in general, and you went home with that. And the thought process behind that was, A, there were a lot of people that couldn't read, and B, even if you could read, you would mess up what the message really was. Your comprehension of what you were reading was not going to be theologically correct. So you needed someone to tell you what the book meant. And there were those that said, absolutely not. That's not what we want. And so we've seen changes. And I just think I don't need someone to think like me. I just want you to figure out what you believe on your own. And these programs distract from that. They just do. They take class time. And you can say, well, it's, you know, it teaches kids how they can do this. Well, then you know what? Make it an elective. Take something like that and make it an after school program. If it's that value, valuable, make it an after school program. Until we, and this is just what I would do if I were in Tom Horn's shoes, this is what I would push if I were on a school board. I would be saying, until we have a huge majority of our kids, especially elementary school kids, reading at grade level, we are not going to focus on anything else. That we are going to make sure that the core is all that they have in front of them. We are not going to distract them, whether it's valuable or not. I'm not even arguing the value of critical race theory at this moment. I'm arguing the priority of it. I'm not arguing social emotional learning. I'm arguing the priority of it. Until, and I think, how could you, I don't care where you are politically, how could you not agree with this statement? Until our children are educated in the basics, we shouldn't introduce anything else to what they're learning. Now, I I read this earlier, and this is where the other political ideology comes out. This is not from Arizona. This is from Iowa. A school district in Iowa 
said that um, their job is not to teach kids. I'm going to read this to you. This is a Facebook post from a school board in Iowa. The purpose of a public education is not to teach kids what parents want. It's to teach them what society needs them to know. Scary enough? Here's how the post ends. The client is not the parent, but the community. In other words, we are going to fixate on creating what we consider to be good citizens. So as the wind blows, as the wind blows, uh, we will change what we consider to be good. If you go back to the 1970s when I was a little kid, um, what was good was different. And here's what I mean by that. When you watch television shows, um, there were things that were off limits. And there were things that you would see on shows very often, uh, racially motivated human uh, humor, um, misogyny, um, bigotry. That was funny. The show All in the Family, Archie Bunker was a bigot, a misogynist. He was all of those things. He was a racist. He was a homophobe. There was a, a, a transvestite on the show. Um, and he was the lovable guy that had a good heart, but he was all of those things as a middle-aged white guy. He used to tell his wife to dummy up, go get me a beer, called her dingbat. I mean, this is, this is like a husband talking to his wife on TV. And I know if you're listening to me say this now, he's like, and that was a comedy. It was hysterically funny, the most popular show on TV in the 70s. What you didn't see was sex. I love Lucy. They slept in separate beds. They slept in 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 uh, in beds with a nightstand between them. Now we don't do unless you're an animated show, unless you're animated, you know, unless you're family guy or something like that. We don't do racially charged humor or sexually charged uh, homophobic, whatever you want to call it, humor. That's off limits. And everything is sexual. Everything is sexual. Not calling it good or bad. I'm calling it different. I'm calling it different. So now we're teaching that this is good in school. And that, no, we should be teaching children the basics of education so they can read for themselves and figure it out. And until we're on path to do, on the path to do that, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Uh, interesting story. Uh, Governor Hobbs continuing to bus and fly migrants across the country. How is it different from our former governor's program? Her explanation and my explanation coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thank you. Um, Governor Hobbs has said that she is going to continue on, although it will be different, continue on with a program that was started by Governor Ducey to ship migrants to other places outside of the border towns here in the state of Arizona. She says what she is going to do is going to be more humane. Um, and so this is, is something to discuss. We understand that part of the reason why this is happening is because we are overwhelming border towns, not just in Arizona, but Texas is feeling this as well. There has been some relief and, and people are the mayor of of Yuma has said, you know, they're happy to see the relief. They're hoping that it continues because of the policy of the Biden administration. But the concern is that a lot of this lull had more to do with holidays and less to do with policy. I hope that's not the case. I hope that here's my my hope would be this, 
that the White House sees that a policy that says anybody that comes here – now there's four nations involved that have been named. But anybody that comes here from those four nations, when you cross the border, you will not be given an asylum he- hearing. You will be turned around and you will be sent back across the border to wait in Mexico and wait your turn. Well, that has been a dramatic drop of border crossers. Mexico has taken a bunch of people into their nation. And if this policy works, if this continues to see a drop in the crossings, I think that's great for America. Uh, you know, I, I want to see this end. And then we can get to the place once we have a, a, a controlled border and better border security and a plan for it. We can figure out what to do with our immigration system. I believe it needs to be fixed. But the governor's, our governor's, plan calls for flying people to the destination of their choice. I do have a little bit of an issue with that. I just do. And I don't want to be a hard-hearted person. I really don't want to be hard-hearted. What has been happening is this, and it has caused a logjam, that there is um, at least one bus, but usually uh, maybe more, but six days a week, Monday through Saturday, there is a bus that shows up at the 44th Street in Washington Station of the light rail. Um, Well, actually what it is is it's the SkyTrain station that is just uh, south of the 44th Street light rail station, but it's a bus that shows up. Now, the SkyTrain starts there at that station outside of the airport at 44th. Street in Washington, and then it rolls into the park. It goes to the East Economy lot, then Terminal 4, Terminal 3, and so on through the airport. And these busloads of migrants are dropped off. They are left to fend for themselves. They either have money they've brought with them for a plane ticket, they borrow money from people for a plane ticket, or charitable organizations give them money for a plane ticket. They go into the airport, they get plane tickets, and then they wait until their flights leave. Um, and that's the system that's been in place. This system will be flying them wherever they want to go. Now, to me, that adds a sense of incentive. I want you to think about this. If Texas is sending you out of state somewhere, but Arizona is flying you wherever you want to go, where would you end up? I'm being just I'm being serious. If and you know the word gets out, this is why people have stopped coming. Word is, and this is according to the White House, the new policies of the White House have changed the minds of people that it's not worth coming. Well, if Arizona says once you come in here and you apply for asylum and you're given an opportunity and a hearing date and everything else, we're going to put you on an airplane and fly you wherever you want to go. Now, if this program is not that, okay, then I'm glad to hear that it's not that. But if it is, we all should be upset that our tax dollars are paying for that, and we should be upset that we are incentivizing border crossers to end up in Arizona and not Texas because we're giving them a free plane ride somewhere. I want you to hear Mayor Adams. Now, you got to remember, this is a sanctuary city mayor, a self-described sanctuary city mayor, and is this is what he is saying about the issue in New York City with migrants. I believe that when I took the trip to the El Paso, you could see firsthand the impact of how it not only uh, harmed the foundation of El Paso, but look at Chicago, Houston, Washington, New York City. This is just unfair for cities to uh, carry the weight of a national problem. So this is cities carrying the weight of a national problem. It's so funny. I never thought I would agree so much with a statement of someone that I'm so opposite with in the handling of illegal immigration in America. But this mayor is feeling the brunt of this, which is why he is so outspoken that the federal government needs to do something about this issue. 
Now, here's the question. Do you think that when it comes to this program, what happened was the governor of Texas, the governor of Arizona, and then eventually the governor of Florida said, you know, these sanctuary cities that are talking about how evil Arizona is. Let's start flying people to Washington, D.C. We dropped some. We didn't. But a bus busloads of people, I believe it was Christmas Eve, might have been New Year's Eve, dropped off at the in front of the home of the vice president in uh, in Washington, D.C., New York City. Um, all of these other places where people had to face what we've been facing and a small taste of it and how quickly their messages changed. So it was sending a message. Do we believe still that it's going to be this way? Do we think that Governor Hobbs is going to be flying people to New York City, to Washington, D.C.? It's just something to think about. It's not these huge ideological Republican Democrat beat yourself up. It's results oriented. Should the taxpayer of Arizona pay this? And is it incentivizing people to end up here and not other places because we're flying them wherever they want to go? I'm not asking um, irresponsible questions or, or jaded questions. That's an honest question. What are the results of this going to be? It's a great question. What we're going to do just after 11 o'clock is we had an interview with Senator Borelli, Sonny Borelli, about, uh, about taxes being dropped at the state level. We'll talk about it next.